gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you need to listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Might have remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Monty Python and the Holy Grail and how to do more with less in your marketing. There's some pretty epic scenes. I mean, the favorite has to be when he fights the knight guarding the bridge. And he just won't give up. Like, all his limbs are just off and he's just still going. That is Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager here at Caspian Studios and our marketing aficionado. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? I've heard worse. Well, so the reason why I wanted to do Monty Python and the Holy Grail is because everyone in marketing is talking about do more with less, right? This is the the sign of our time, especially in, in the tech world where there's budget cuts and layoffs and all sorts of stuff going on, um, the tech apocalypse and, and all those things. But marketers, well, we still have to persevere. We still have to drive pipeline. We still have to create content. And I was talking to my brother and he was... We were talking about the coconut scene and he was like, you know, the reason why that they did this scene with coconuts is because they didn't have a budget for a horse. And I thought, well, what a perfect thing to do for an episode of Remarkable. So Meredith, what the heck is Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a 1975 low budget British comedy and it satirizes the legend of King Arthur. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire for this show and many other shows at Caspian Studios. Stars uh, Graham Chapman as King Arthur himself, Terry Gilliam as his squire, Patsy, uh, Terry Jones as Sir Bedivere, John Cleese as Lancelot, and he also plays one of the guards, and the other is played by Michael Palin, uh, and Eric Idle as the dead collector. Bring out your dead! And those guys are all part of the Monty Python comedy troupe. It also starts Carol Cleveland as Zoot. Welcome, gentle Sir Knight. Welcome to the Castle Anthrax. And Sandy Johnson as the Knight of Knee. Who are you? We are the knights who say... And of course, it's a long list, but super fun to remember all the characters. The movie was co-directed by both Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, and Terry Gilliam also did the animations and the artwork. So zooming out, how the heck did this get made? Why did it get made? 
The reason for them making the Holy Grail in the first place is pretty convoluted. You get all sorts of answers from different members of the troupe. What first attracted you to the idea of doing an epic? Oh, ooh, well, I've always admired Charlton Heston's work, you know. Another being that they just started writing and this is kind of what they came up with. Ten minutes before a take, the script is slightly rewritten. About five minutes before the take, it's fairly radically rewritten. So in fact, at the very last minute, there's usually some little extra bits creep in. I think it was like the fifth rewriting that actually ended up being made. We never knew where we were going until we were nearly there. But they ended up filming it in Scotland in a town called Glencoe. But they had some issues with locations. They wanted to film at a a castle or multiple castles. Um, But the Scottish government wouldn't let them because they said the Holy Grail was not consistent with the dignity of the fabric of the buildings. And so they had to go to two privately owned castles for the filming, one called Dune Castle and the other Castle Stalker. It is a good castle, actually. Mm. But they said the weather was super damp and unpleasant to film in, uh, especially given that their costumes were made of wool and it kind of like soaked up the humidity. And in the very first shot, their camera broke down. It jammed. You seem to be enjoying that sandwich. Are you enjoying the filming? Um, No, no. And Terry Gilliam said, we had this incredible location, no camera and no experience. It was Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones's first feature film. So... They were totally new to making movies. Gosh, that's so, it's so great. Pretty much no money, pretty much no experience, no camera, not the right location. All the excuses to make something that is, that is substandard. So how, how'd they get it paid for? So the money came from super unusual sources. You know, we've got uh, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin. We've got a lot of record companies, Ireland, uh, Chrysalis, Charisma. And Michael White, the theater producer. And they all helped finance the movie. Led Zeppelin gave them over 31,000 pounds in 1974 money. So that's about 405,000 US dollars today. Uh, Pink Floyd gave them what would now be 270,000 US dollars. And Ian Anderson gave them about 80,000 US dollars in today's money. So the reason why they had a bunch of bands and they actually had a bunch of studios support Uh, the financing of the movie was because they had been supplementing their TV series with records. Their albums are hilariously named Monty Python's Contractual Obligation Album, the hastily cobbled together for a fast buck album, and an album called The Monty Python Matching Tie and Handkerchief. And um, those were all produced by a label called Charisma Records, um, which was well known to Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Ian Anderson. Um, And so they had become fans of Monty Python. And so they offered to bankroll the movie. And they also had a Aside from those top three, Michael White, who's a film producer, Island Records, Charisma Records, Chrysalis Records, and even a cricket team that a lyricist Tim Rice played on called The Heartaches gave them money to start this movie. Terry Gilliam, who was one of the co-directors, said sort of cynically that they were a tax write-off since British taxes could take up to 90% from high earners, like, you know, bands that were very successful. Their total budget was only about $400,000 at the time. Eric Idle said, even with all that money, we couldn't afford horses, hence the coconuts. What? Ridden on a horse? Yes. You're using coconuts. What? You've got two empty halves of coconut and you're banging them together. 
But the movie ended up grossing about $5 million at the box office. And then Robert Plant and Jimmy Page both hung out with the Monty Python troupe at the premiere. It's time to ramble on. Gosh, that's just, it's such such an amazing story. But that's not like, it's not like they were broke, broke, right, Dane? I mean, that's like not nothing. No, I mean, I know, I know indie movies. Uh, I, actually, I've worked on indie movies in the last five years that that have a, a similar budget and it's it's way tighter now than it was then that is dane eckerly head of development at caspian studios and mr hollywood big shot movie maker himself but it's still you know compared to studio stuff back then i feel like the indie thing was a little bit newer then too you know like the the independent film scene was kind of just rising and it was weird to break away from studios kind of in the 70s i think so I could see how that would be. That would be a, a little bit of a tricky tightrope walk with with that little money and outside the system, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, you know, if you encounter for today's money, you know, it's it's not that bad, but you figure they have this massive comedy troupe who all need to get paid and they're paying castles and they're doing all this other stuff. It's funny to be that famous and that notorious and have all these, you know, really ridiculously super famous musicians investing in you and yet you still feel like you're broke and can't make the thing you want like sound, sounds familiar so why coconuts meredith so as eric idle said they couldn't afford horses horses even now can be like i was looking up prices and it was like a hundred dollars an hour something like that for filming and they're all specially trained and and so to get around that john cleese said that michael palin came up with the idea to use coconuts for the horse sound effects instead Where'd you get the coconuts? We found them. Found them? In Mercia, the coconut's tropical. What do you mean? Well, this is a temperate zone. Terry Gilliam reasoned that we would never have got through that movie with real horses. It makes a wonderful leap because with that opening shot, you accept the kind of lunatic logic that's there. Uh, and so this sort of absurd result is a group of knights hopping on foot like they're on horses uh, with a few squires behind them clapping hollow coconuts together. Are you suggesting coconuts migrate? Not at all. They could be carried. What? A swallow carrying a coconut? And then for the premiere of the movie, they had this publicity stunt where the premiere was at the Plaza Theatre in New York and Monty Python advertised that they would give out a thousand coconuts for the first 1,000 patrons. Eric Idle said that he got a call while he was still at the hotel the morning of the premiere, and they already had a thousand people lined up to see the movie, and it was only 8 a.m., so it was a little too successful. Listen, in order to maintain airspeed velocity, a swallow needs to beat its wings 43 times every second, right? Please! Can a five-ounce bird carry a one-pound coconut? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, so good. I just love that such an iconic scene was made because they couldn't afford horses and that they had to do this. And then it reframes the entire opening of their movie. It frames the entire experience that you're going to get. It becomes this iconic thing. And then they write all these jokes around it. It's like the best when life gives you lemons, you know, make lemonade situation. And it never would have happened if they had a bigger budget. I think that's also why it works so well because they're not trying to put on a front. They're literally just like playing into what the scenario actually is. Like they don't have the money. So let's just like kind of make fun of ourselves. And I'd bet that that's why it was also such a a well-liked movie because of that transparency. 
Dane, have you ever made a movie with a horse? I've never worked with a horse. I've worked with dogs that don't just stand there, but actually have to like attack and do things. And it's like, they have agents. Like you have to deal with like a rep for animals and you have to pay them a commission. The only difference is unlike a human, they show up and they don't, like they know they're working, but like, do they? Like they don't know that they're on the clock and that there's some production on their shoulders. So like, you could just be sitting around like, I wonder when the dog is going to decide to like bark when we ask him to bark. I, we could be here all night, you know? So yeah, it's tough. And I feel like they probably saved more than money of actually like booking horses. That time you save, just not having to deal with animals and wrangling and taking breaks and feeding and, you know, all that type of stuff. It's it's such a disaster. It's such a disaster. And honestly, even more than the logistical stuff, like there's something so nice. And obviously I'm an independent film guy first and foremost. So like, of course I'm going to say this, but like, I just feel like when you have the money, when you have all the resources, And this isn't to say that big movies or big commercials or big marketing campaigns are bad, but like there's no, there's no limitations. There's no box that you're put in that like breeds a new level of creativity or outside the box thinking. It's just, you do what you can or what's been done before or what you can afford, which is anything. And it's sort of, you know, I think it robs a little bit of that like DIY, honestly, just outside the box, scrappy thinking. And I think you lose a little bit of that inventiveness when you have it all, you know? And so in that sense, like, I think it's it's easier to stand out from the pack if you're embracing your limitations or if you're just recognizing what your budget is and you're like, we don't have much, but that doesn't mean we can't break through. In fact, it almost means like, hey, we don't have a lot to fall back on. Let's get really creative in how we do this and let's go a little, I'm sure when they were pitching the idea of coconuts, there was probably half the people there were like, that is ridiculous, dude. We're not going to do that. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> but like, maybe it's just this, this is the, the proof in the pudding. It's just like, hey, if you have those crazy ideas, lean in, you know, those could be the happiest accidents. Like you said, life gives you lemons, make, make whatever the hell you want. Like it's, it, it could be really fun. And that might stand out more than if you had the money and you did the buy the book thing. You know, and if you're ahead of the pack, especially if that pack all has agents and are, and are on the set and getting fed and all that stuff, then it's pretty nice to continue the dog analogy. I also think that they could have rode around it and they didn't, which is another point. Like they could have used the coconuts just like every movie uses all sorts of audio effects and they could have shot above their waist right? Like they could have done that. I mean, I guess it would have been pretty challenging, but they could have written into the first part of the series that all of their horses were killed or whatever it is, but they didn't do that. They're like, this is so absurd that we're going to just zoom out and show the absurdity. And I feel like that that is just so, so fun and so creative. And it's something that shows the, you know, the viewer, it's very endearing to be like, I'm in on the joke now too. And I'm in on the the premise of this whole silly charade that they're going to be running. Well, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Meredith, any other uh, cost-saving measures? Oh, definitely. The funniest one was that they had the same actors play multiple characters And there would be specific scenes where both those characters would be in one frame together, in one scene together. And so they'd have the actual actor play the more major role if they had lines or whatever. And then they would have an extra, somebody who, you know, whatever, an extra actor, play the other character, but that person would have their back to the camera. So you couldn't see their face. And so that was super funny to me. 
But also the costumes were made of actually wool, like I had mentioned before, and they had just painted it to look like armor. We mentioned that the castles, they mainly shot at two castles, but it was mostly Castle Dune. And that same castle was just used and reused, even if it was at different places, like Castle Anthrax versus Camelot. And so they just would shoot from different angles to make it look like different places, but it was still the same castle. Uh, And then the other thing that was funny was the final fight is filled out, like the crowd of people fighting is made up of about 200 University of Sterling students, and they were each paid just two pounds for their services. And so at least now they can say they were, you know, part of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Just a couple quid, you know, for the afternoon. Gosh, that's so fun. Dana, I feel like how many times have you been on a movie set where if you went and said, oh, let's just let's just paint the wool to look like armor or like, let's just shoot the exact same location just in a different, you know, in a different way that some of the creatives that you worked with would have like, you know, taken you aside and been like, I'm, I'm going to murder your whole family for saying that. (laughs) A lot of times. At least least give a flesh wound. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? Bleed on me? No, I think that's happened a lot, but honestly, I I think, speaking just from you know experience on some smaller movies and and not having a lot the times when you don't look at it realistically and just go okay this is what we got and this is how we're going to have to work with it when you fight the tide it actually ends up looking bad like if you try and stretch something and make something that you really don't have any business making everyone can feel it but i think it's it's the reverse that in the past has led to some really cool stuff that i've worked on like for instance last year we're doing this horror thriller and we could only afford stunt coordinators on a certain amount of days, which meant that a lot of the action either needed to get consolidated into those days, but we wanted the action that we did have to look really good, but we didn't want to have to stretch ourselves too thin and try and cram in 50 stunts in two days. It's like, let's do 10 stunts really, really well in those two days. It's like, okay, well, how do we make up for the other coverage of those moments? And so we ended up just leaning into what we didn't have, which was the ability to do stunts. So what we did was similar to what you were saying about uh, Meredith, like, you know, painting the wool, making it look a certain type of way, and then shooting somebody from over the shoulder, a similar trick where there was a a younger brother character who's watching his brother essentially do some pretty violent stuff, but we leaned into the emotion of it. And so instead of showing the action, we captured the first part of the action. And then you cut in the edit to the brother's face. And it's just this really slow push in and the actor who the role and the actor, uh, the kid had down syndrome. So it's this, it's this disabled kid cameras just slowly pushing it on his face and you hear the carnage really gnarly and there's no music. And you're just sitting in this moment and there's these awful like drone sounds underneath it all. I just saw uh, the most recent cut and everyone was like, that moment's incredible. Like, what a great choice. And in my head, I'm like, oh, we just didn't have any money. (laughs) (laughs) It gives me chills. Mission accomplished. It was so cool. But like when you do stuff like that, and I think the biggest thing too is like, like also the the coconut thing, it wasn't like a quick band-aid. They were like, we're doing it. Oh, and we're leaning in all the way. So like the premiere, we're giving out coconuts. We're going to call attention to it. I think letting people know it was a choice and not an accident or like, oh, it's not we didn't have enough money. It's no, no, we made this choice. No one needs to know why. Of course, you made it because you didn't have any money or you were just there. What you didn't have everything. But I think leaning in as much as you possibly can and like calling attention to the thing. Like if, you know, same movie, we had a similar issue where we couldn't 
just because of the way our schedule is running. We couldn't capture one scene in with multiple takes or with multiple different camera angles, and we just had one camera. So we shot the whole thing in a wide with a really, really slow push-in. And rather than say, that's the only shot in the movie that does that, even when we did have time, we opted to use those takes in the edit of those wide, slow push-ins, just so that it felt like, okay, this is a stylistic choice. This is a decision that's being made. And it's now the movie has a style that maybe it wouldn't have had, had we had all the money that we wanted in the world. So it's like, stuff like that, I feel like goes so much further than you think, just being like, huh. How do we salvage this, but then also level up while we deal with a frustrating fact that we don't have a lot, you know, and clearly it worked for Monty Python. And I mean, I hope we do Monty Python sales on this movie, even though it's a completely different movie. Maybe we bring coconuts to the <laughs> yeah. premiere. I don't know. We go. We got we to see. <laughs> That's right. Well, we got to uh, we'll email the, the remarkable list when it premieres. Yes. It's like, go see this. Everybody's got to go. Everybody's got to go see this. Everybody gets a coconut. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Colin. It's kind of fascinating to hear about these production crews for films that make the most out of what they got. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the conversations that, that we have in the B2B world of, uh, you know, everyone's got a budget they're working with and it's, what can you do with it? Yeah. And, and I think that one of the things that I want to sort of zoom in on, and it's a good segue into, into how to apply this to your B2B marketing. So do more with less implies a few things. Number one, which like not always the best phrase, but we're hearing it a lot. So, and that's the theme for today. Do more with less is really interesting to me because it implies two things. Number one, that you need to do more so you need to push the boundaries of what you have done in the past. So if you had a million dollar budget and you achieved X results, that now you need to surpass what you used to do. And then the second piece is that you have less to do it with, which means you have less physical dollars that you can invest. As we've just you know illustrated with Monty Python and, and some of the films that Dana's worked on, that you have all of the mental capacity in the world to be able to figure out the solutions and do more with less is just a reframing of the problem. It's okay. If we have these constraints and we need to achieve these, then what things could we do? And I think in, in the B2B marketing world, a lot of times, you know, there's certain things that you say, okay, well, we don't have the budget for this. So how can we do it in house? Or we don't have the budget for this. So, Maybe we'll just cut that thing or, or, or whatever. And I think that a better framing of it is not necessarily um, do, we, do we just like cut stuff, is just to think how can one plus one plus one equal five? Like could we find a partner that is trying to do the same thing and go to market with them for a content series? Is there an organization that is looking for a, a similar type of an outcome that if they bring the distribution and we bring the content creation that, you know, that we could do something there. If it's about shooting something, some type of videos, is there a way that you could limit the resources that you put into post-production by on the front end, shooting it way different? Then you were going to like, Hey, you know, we were going to set up three cameras. We were going to shoot this, you know, in one location, we're going to go to the customer. We were going to do a, an entire two day shoot on customer location, get this amazing video, get all sorts of B roll, get all that stuff. It's like, well, 
maybe that company just has B-roll that they will just offer to give you. Or, you know, whatever it is that there's there's those little things that you can figure out to say, if I was to do it in a totally different way, um, how would I do that? And then the other thing is trying to find those, if it's some type of content series, doing it much more like in like a TikTok style or something that feels a little bit more relatable or I don't want to say amateur, but, you know, figuring out, out those things. And I think a lot of times people just feel like, well, this was our program spend and now we just got to chop stuff off, but we need to do more. And I would say that perhaps just like stretching your brain a little bit and using your team and to try to figure out those places, really zoning in on finding the right partners that are already doing cool stuff and saying, hey, could we hop in this car with you and do it with you. Like, Hey, we have something to bring to the table. We don't have a ton of money, but we do have some stuff. We wanted to create, you know, this thing, we wanted to create some webinars. We wanted to do whatever. And seems like you're doing something really cool. Maybe we could come in and we could, you know, just pay for the ads or do something there. And I think that in the before world, you would just say, Hey, we're just going to do a hundred percent of this in house. Or like, we're going to do 100% of this our way alone and not have another partner involved or something like that. I completely agree. It, just because you're on a budget doesn't always mean that you have to sacrifice quality. And it also doesn't mean that you can't do certain things. Like in the example you just mentioned with, like, say you go on site with a customer, there's so many creative ways that you could make the most of that. Like maybe you say, okay, we have X amount of time that we're filming this. Like, let's do the case study with the customer and maybe we have someone with their iPhone recording the behind the scenes footage of how we did this. Maybe we come up with a like five quick questions that we like a speed round of questions that we do at the end of the recording with like the last 10 minutes and we turn that into social. Con There's so many different things that you can do if you're willing to take that extra time just to get a little more creative with what you have. Yeah, I would add. So I was on a, uh, like a six figure shoot for basically product videos mixed with like a little bit of customer videos with like an incredible team, super, super awesome team. And I mean, we did, we did three hours of my hands typing on keyboards, like literally. Not to minimize the craft, the, to, by no means am I judging the craft. The, the end result was amazing. But if you're like, hey, we want to do more videos like that, it's like there's no way around it. If the whole crew has to wait until, you know, the witching hour for the sun to go down and just be just perfect for that scene that you want, like you're paying for everybody for that whole thing. So you have to figure out another way around that. And it just isn't going to look like you want it to look. And so if you know it's not going to look the way you want it to look, yeah, maybe you shoot on iPhone. Maybe you just do behind the scenes stuff. You know, you could take a, a, a series of images like, hey, we're not going to send a video team. We're just going to send a photographer and just get a bunch of stills and then put all of those stills together in like a 30 second sort of montage where it's like ripping through like 100 stills. There, there's other ways to sort of think about how to create an asset that's cool and unique and I think that specifically, you know, this is regards to customer videos where we kind of have a standard playbook of we know how like get the person in their headquarters with the right light in the right spot at their desk or maybe somewhere else, 
it's just super expensive to do that stuff. It just is. If you want to shoot that exact type of video, there's really no way to do it like super, super cheap. At the end of the day, it's going to be time for a production team to do something like that. Totally. I also think too, it's one of those things where recently in the last couple of years, we've kind of like seen what Instagram filters look like. And I think there's now an appetite more than ever for things that just feel authentic. So if you don't have a huge budget or you're not, you know, a fortune 500 company or, you know, a billion dollar organization, like the whole fake it. So you make it thing feels kind of over in a lot of respects. Like uh, there's a, a clothing brand out of New York called minted. I don't even wear it. I've never bought it. But the reason I want to buy it is because I've seen TikTok videos of the dude who started it in his apartment with his brother wrapping every package by themselves and talking about how excited he is that the business is finally growing to the point where he can't even handle the volume. And I just want to take a quick video of what our vi- like our living room looks like. And it's like, there's something really cool about that when you can go direct to consumer and just get people excited with what you do have by being like, hey, we don't have a lot, but what we do have is really cool. And this is why we care about it versus being like, look at this huge budget and spending all your money making some glossy commercial that isn't even reflective of your brand, you know? So I think that side of things too, just embracing limitations also in terms of the mentality of like, how you frame up the content and the kind of things you're showcasing, regardless of like the production budget, you know, more the spirit of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think that you need to, you know, find your coconuts, find the angle of the thing that you're going to add to this sort of campaign that is just really unique and maybe interesting and maybe weird. Find your, you know, your slow zoom in, find that thing that you're like, hey, stylistically, we're going to do this thing. We're going to make this choice. And this is what this sort of campaign is going to be about. And I talk about the customer video piece because every single content marketer that I talk to wants to make more short form video in 2023. Every single one, without a doubt. It's super popular. It's crushing on social. Uh, Obviously, like TikTok stuff for business is virtually an untouched space that there's tons of value there. Everyone's trying to do short form video. And, you know, nobody has budgets to go shoot a bunch of expensive video. And meanwhile, YouTube channels for most businesses, for most B2B companies are like, pretty awful. And so if you have a lens and an approach and sort of find your coconuts and figure out like, what is the thing that we could do for this campaign that makes it interesting and unique and cheap, then that's a cool way of of thinking about it. Any B2B examples, uh, Colin, that you can think of? In terms of B2B examples, what comes to mind is what Dane was mentioning about how he was really attracted to a brand that was kind of documenting the process as they went. That stuff stands out to me personally a lot. On like LinkedIn, I follow a lot of founders who are just starting off and don't have crazy budgets to make the biggest productions of content, but they'll just like record themselves working, getting started, like in those beginning stages of the business and being super transparent about things. And I love that. Like you, you, you want to follow them. You want to know what's next. There's that level of transparency that's really cool and relatable. That stands out to me the most. I have one. So, and it's a, it's a recent guest of, of Remarkable. So Bionic, they were doing a series of these glass board illus- uh, videos. Where they, had, they had set up a little studio and they had one of their leaders doing these, you know, dry erase or like the white, white markers on the glass board videos. And that's one of those things I think is really cool because you can set up that studio for like not too expensive 
and you can record those and they feel really engaging and cool. And not everybody has like the talent to like throw into something like that. But those are one, one thing that I really like that style. It looks very different. It's very engaging. The other thing that I was thinking is the whiteboard animations that I love those videos. They're super engaging. They're super interesting. I want to do more of those at Caspian in general. And it's something I want to invest some money in because they're not really expensive. You can find people online that can make whiteboard videos relatively cheaply, but you can tell any story with it. And with the illustration, it gives you the ability to tell such a rich story without having to film it or use stock video. So I like those. I think that that's a way to sort of do more with less. Another thing that I would shout out, uh, so we have a customer, Alex Willis, who is the CEO of Leadership Surge. And we he wanted to build a really cool studio for his uh, video series that, that we're doing for him. And we just completed it. And it was really not that expensive. It looks amazing. And for the audience that he's looking for and to have that look and a feel of like that type of studio... It wasn't something ridiculous, but it gives you that extra angle for him that he wanted in this show to give you really good visuals and really consistent visuals and something that you really only have a single cam on most of the time. So it allows your post-production to be really cheap while having these really high quality visuals. And now those videos pop extremely well on, uh, on YouTube and other places. All right. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. I feel happy. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, Dane Eckerly, our head of development, Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, And our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.